1866, a successful businessman from Tucson was traveling north toward Prescott. However, as he neared the Salt River, just a few miles upstream from the just-starting-to-bloom settlement that would one day be Phoenix, he was literally stopped in his tracks. The river was flooded, and crossing it, for now, was impossible. For two days, this freighter captain had nothing to do but explore the area and wait for the waters to recede. With time on his hands, he climbed to the top of one of a pair of nearby buttes to get a better view of his location. From his vantage point, the Salt River Valley spread out before him. Swilling's Ditch and the associated buildings were roughly seven miles to the west, while to the east the river simply snaked its way through the hot desert floor. But this merchant, who was always looking for the next business opportunity, didn't see the expanse of the Sonoran Desert or simply a field of cacti with maybe an adobe hut here or there. Instead, in his mind's eye, he had a sweeping vision of canals connecting to the river and irrigating field after field of fruits, vegetables, and grains. At the bottom of the butte he now stood on, he imagined a large mill to grind all the wheat that surely would grow here once this vision became a reality. The flooded Salt River eventually receded and the merchant went along his business, but the vision that came to him atop that butte never went away entirely. It would take nearly a decade, but eventually he relocated permanently to that spot and set to work making his vision come true. And so Phoenix now had a neighbor to the east, and soon it had two of them. And today is their story. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Episode 78, The East Valley. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we looked at a city on the rise, namely Phoenix, and how it slowly developed throughout the 1870s and into the 1880s. Think of today's episode as something of an appendix or epilogue to last week's episode, as there are just a few more things I want to say about Phoenix and the surrounding area before we take the focus away from the Valley of the Sun. I say epilogue because in the flurry of activity that precedes the holiday season, and for narrative purposes, I decided to postpone until after Thanksgiving our next major topic to close out this era of Arizona history. I guess the joke's on me that this appendix turned out to be the length of a normal episode. So this is basically like when you finish reading The Lord of the Rings and still have dozens of pages of appendices to work through. With that said, let us turn back to Phoenix and something that I only tangentially mentioned in last week's episode. The railroad. I merely said in passing that the railroad had reached the city of Maricopa by 1879. And while that's true, there's a little more to it than that. But before I can enter into that, I also have to make another confession. I almost completely skipped over what might be one of the funniest incidents in Arizona capitalistic history when it comes to the very, very brief time I gave the railroad back in episode 76. So, let me rectify that now by talking about the midnight ride 
of the Southern Pacific Railroad. Okay, so two weeks ago, I mentioned how the Southern Pacific was able to make it to Yuma on September 30th, 1877, before starting a full-on business war with its rival, the Texas and Pacific Railroad. But, and I can't believe I forgot this, there is a very interesting and really amusing story about when the line first rolled into Yuma. And since this incident is recorded by the very straight-laced Thomas Sheridan in his book, Arizona History, I know it's not an exaggeration. So, the story goes that as the Southern Pacific Railroad was making its connection across the Colorado River from California to Arizona, it had built the bridge for it. But due to some bureaucratic red tape mix-up, it was forbidden to actually lay down the track to get its engines across the river. Enforcement of this edict fell on the shoulders of the commander of Fort Yuma, Major Thomas Dunn, who even went so far as posting a sentry at the bridge just to make sure no one tried anything. However, all seemed pretty quiet, so the sentry was relieved at 11 p.m. on the night of September 29, 1877. And within an hour, workers from the Southern Pacific were swarming over the bridge trying to clandestinely build the railroad while no one was looking. All was actually going pretty well until 2 a.m., when the inevitable finally happened. Someone dropped a rail, which clanged loudly on the bridge. Since said bridge was relatively close to the fort, and Dunn was probably not sleeping that soundly anyway, the commander heard this great clatter, and he sprang from his bed to see what was the matter. When he saw that the railroad was trying to be a little tricksy, he called out his entire garrison, which happened to consist of himself, a sergeant, and one probably very put-upon private. This comically undermanned garrison confronted the workers and ordered them to cease and desist immediately. And believe it or not, this actually worked at first. That is, until a carload full of rails came rumbling down the already laid track, forcing Dunn and his men to retreat or be run over. It was too late. By 7 a.m., the railroad had reached downtown Yuma, where citizens joined in jubilant celebration. And I will just add that state historian Marshall Trimble quips that the Fort Yuma garrison was sent a detachment of another 12 men after this incident. More than a year later, in November 1878, the railroad building eastward from Yuma began in earnest. As I noted last week, in these early days, a lot of the labor was done by Chinese immigrants, who were both fleeing from prejudice in California and doing some of the only work they could actually get. Ostensibly, the railroad's decision to hire the Chinese over Americans was because they couldn't, in good conscience, subject white workers to the harsh desert sun. However, the real reason is that the Chinese were only paid 50 cents a day, half of what an American would earn, and had to provide for their own board. What I find ironic in that story is that the professed reason for hiring the Chinese is so much more racist than the real one. But anyway, more than 1,100 Chinese laborers laid down track at a rate of more than a mile a day until roughly May of 1879. At that point, the crews had laid down 182 miles of rail in 139 working days and had made it as far as Casa Grande. But soaring summer temperatures that would have devastated enough of the workforce to finally arouse some semblance of the boss's sense of humanity, plus a lack of railroad ties, 
forced them to temporarily push pause on the project. The Chinese laborers were either shipped back to California, or they pursued other opportunities, such as in Tombstone or, as we talked about last week, Phoenix. I still want to hold off on talking more about the railroad ties that eventually bound Arizona together until a future episode, but I will jump off the track here to mention that before these crews stopped, the line reached the Maricopa station on April 29, 1879. Now, we today think of Maricopa as a somewhat distant bedroom community for Phoenix, but for early travelers, it was an important stop in the journey across Arizona. There were natural springs near the Gila River that made this a logical stopping place for travelers about to hit the harsh desert between there and Yuma. Maricopa had been a stop for the Butterfield stage line and had its own telegraph office, so making it a railroad depot was a no-brainer. All of this was great news for Phoenix, and not just because they could now actually get lumber for their houses. Since the station was only 23 miles or so from the settlement along the Salt River, this was a great boost to both trade and travel. The only problem was, yeah, it was still 23 miles away, which was quite the distance in the pre-automobile era. To alleviate things somewhat, Phoenix boosters had managed to build a road for both stagecoaches and freight wagons, though this could not keep up with everyone wanting to come and go from the city. After all, a bumpy, dusty, uncomfortable trip by stage would still take six whole hours, and moving by freight wagon took 16 hours or essentially two traveling days. Almost immediately, the call went out to construct a spurred line that would link Phoenix with the Maricopa station, though that would obviously require a ton of fundraising. When that spur eventually connected, it proved quite the boon to the Salt River Valley, but now I'm getting far ahead of the actual story. The last thing I want to mention when it comes to Phoenix is the moment it became a real grown-up city. That, of course, meant incorporation. As incredible as it may seem, though it had been an official town site and had been voted the county seat, Phoenix had never actually been incorporated. Last week, we talked about how things were run by the quasi-governmental Salt River Valley Town Association, though it didn't have the muscle or the money to really keep up with all the demands on it. So, by 1878, the call for Phoenix to incorporate and chart its own destiny started to catch on with the populace. The Salt River, and later Phoenix Herald, gave voice to this opinion when it said, quote, Phoenix now is of sufficient size and importance to justify incorporation. There should be hands careful hands to train up Phoenix in the way it should go to care for its streets, its squares, and the town generally." End quote. Although, with all cases of incorporation, there were concerns over taxation, the boosters pretty much won the day by pointing out all the things Phoenix would get once it was a bona fide city. The first was recognition as a fully settled and structured town. Then there was the ability to pass ordinances to prohibit the quote-unquote half-naked Amerindians who were constantly lollygagging about, and the Chinese-run opium dens that we talked about last week. And yep, those were two actual examples that boosters used to persuade others to vote for incorporation. And finally, there was the chance to have real money to actually fix up the place when needed. Leading boosters touted the fact that the tax burden would actually be quite low, with a provision that the budget always had to be balanced, and any debt entered into would take a vote of the people and required a 70% majority. 
And in return, they can move away from the ad hoc Salt River Valley Town Association to actual elected officials with real, recognized constitutional powers to, you know, do stuff. Prominent citizen C.A. Luke hammered this last point home when he said, quote, They act at present by assumption and contrivance. Why should the citizens of this town continue to impose such arduous duties upon any one of their fellow men? End quote. Like I said, though, no one was really on the other side of this, and a group of prominent Phoenicians signed their names to a petition that was introduced to the 11th Territorial Legislature in January 1881. On February 25th, Governor Fremont, during one of those rare months that he was actually in the territory, signed the Phoenix Charter Bill into law. Phoenix was now officially incorporated, with municipal elections held on May 3rd, 1881. This shouldn't come as a galloping shock to anyone, but John T. Alsap was elected the city's first mayor. Since arriving in the Salt River Valley in 1869, Alsap had been at the forefront of everything happening in the new community. As we talked about back in episode 57, he had led the meeting that had decided where Phoenix's town site should be located, and had been the idea man behind moving it to where downtown is today. He had later rode to Prescott to file the official land patent for the 320-acre site, and, in his role as a state legislator, had introduced the bill to carve out Maricopa County from Yavapai County. He then had helped in the campaign to make Phoenix the county seat, and for years had been one of the community's biggest supporters and a leading citizen. Now, on top of everything, he had the honor of being its first mayor. Less than a week after his election, Alsap would notify the town council that, quote, there is no money in the treasury and there is no indebtedness, end quote. So the council followed up on the mayor's suggestion to impose property and license taxes to effectively create Phoenix's coffers. They also immediately voted on ordinances to keep the city looking nice, like passing one that forbade depositing filth on the streets, sidewalks, or in the canals and ditches. As disgusting as this may sound, and even despite this ordinance, people were in the habit of dumping horse dung into the ditches. On a hot day, well, I don't think I have to tell you how bad things were. Despite the fact that the city would sometimes order chain gangs of prisoners to be used to clean out the city and the ditches, they could never really get ahead of this problem. Ew. Complaints against the city council in these early days mainly centered around citizens suddenly having to pay taxes. I know, shocking, right? And the condition of city streets. You see, ruts and holes in the ground were usually filled in with more, wait for it, that's right, horse dung, which was not quite what people wanted in their chic new American city. But more than that, the city streets were nothing but dust in the summers, and during the winter rains, they became muddy bogs. The council constructed sidewalks and crosswalks. At one point, they even made a crosswalk out of overturned beer bottles to elevate pedestrians, but complaints continued to flow in. But if Leslie Nope taught us all one lesson, it's that that is what you sign up for when you go into local government. We're going to leave off talking about Phoenix for now, mainly because we have now dragged it into the early 1880s, and because we need to turn our attention toward what else was happening in the Salt River Valley. While I have mentioned irrigation extensively so far while talking about Phoenix, 
I will note that at this point, all the canals I have mentioned have been on the north bank of the Salt River. So let us hop seven miles to the east and to the south side of the river to talk about the city we know today as Tempe. To be more accurate, we need to talk about the burgeoning business that was Hayden's Ferry. And for that, we need to talk about the ferry's eponym, Charles Trumbull Hayden. Now, Hayden has actually been around for quite a bit of our story so far, but I have put off talking about him until now because this is when he makes arguably one of his biggest contributions to Arizona. He had been born April 4th, 1825, in the village of Hayden's, yes, you heard that right, in Connecticut to farmers of Puritan stock. He appears to always to have had something of a restless entrepreneurial streak to him, and by the age of 19, he was roaming up and down the eastern seaboard, originally intending to study law, but winding up in teaching. The call of opportunity, plus perhaps a chance encounter with the great statesman Henry Clay, led him to head west to St. Louis in the 1840s, where he quickly decided to abandon being a teacher to cash in on the lucrative trade happening between Santa Fe and St. Louis. He would make his first trip to New Mexico in 1848, where the Western lifestyle left a deep impression upon him, and for years he would operate a successful freighting business that stretched from Missouri to New Mexico, then down into Old Mexico, and even further west. After the Gadsden Purchase went through in 1856, Hayden gathered an especially large stock of goods and headed toward Tubac, but then quickly realized that the real action would be in Tucson. And it's at this point that the 33-year-old Hayden abandoned Missouri altogether and moved permanently to the Old Pueblo, which became the new headquarters of his freighting business and eventually a mercantile store. Once in town, he became one of its leading citizens, and I could have mentioned him a half a dozen times or so when we were dealing with Tucson in the 1860s. As a northern sympathizer, the Civil War convinced him to abandon the Missouri side of his business altogether and devote himself exclusively to his new home. He served on several citizen committees concerned with public improvements and supported the movement to open a public school. Perhaps his proudest achievement came in 1864, when the newly appointed Governor John N. Goodwin named him the first district probate judge for the Arizona Territory. That being said, his stint on the bench only lasted a single year, and during that time he heard no civil cases and only one criminal case involving a resident of Sonora. He would later remark that this was due to the fact that the frontier settlers were wont to settle disputes amongst themselves rather than bring them to court, if you catch my drift. But his short stint and lack of cases didn't stop him from using the honorific Judge Hayden for the rest of his life. He turned back to business and made sure to be where the action was. That meant expanding to Prescott in the mid-1860s and doing a lot more shipping around Tucson in the 1870s. However, he saw that the eventual coming of the railroad would replace his freighting business, so he turned his mind to another venture. This was the vision he experienced on top of that butte in 1866, of the Salt River Valley turned into a patchwork of irrigated fields and fruit trees. With the gumption that had served him well his entire career, he broached this idea with Jack Swilling, who was an old acquaintance from Tucson, and Bill Kirkland, another leading Tucson settler who may have to get his own supplemental one of these days. And eventually, Hayden went into the canal building business with both. In 1870, he put a notice in the Arizona Minor newspaper in Prescott 
that he had claimed two sections of land between the two buttes on the south side of the river, five miles upstream from Phoenix, for the purposes of farming, milling, and other miscellaneous business purposes. By 1872, he was also operating a very profitable ferry next to his under-construction gristmill, which would open for business two years later. By December 1873, local Tucson papers let it be known that Judge Hayden had moved permanently to this new location, then going by the name Hayden's Ferry. Though the town would not incorporate until 1893, this right here is the beginnings of modern Tempe. And in case you haven't made the connection already, Hayden's Mill is the source of the name Mill Avenue, which ran right by it. While he is also the namesake for Hayden Butte, sometimes referred to as A Mountain, where there is literally a giant A on the hill in honor of ASU. Just by the by, the Hayden Mill still exists in the same spot today, though the current one was built in 1918 to replace a previous adobe one built in 1895, which had itself replaced the original one built in 1874. I will also just note that Hayden is also the father of Carl Hayden, who we will have a lot more to say about in the future as we finally move into the 20th century. Someday. But enough about Hayden, his mill, and the future town of Tempe, because it's finally time to talk about the other community springing up to the east. Mesa. As I mentioned last week, this is my hometown, so I'm a bit tickled to finally be able to talk about its origins right now. To understand the founding of Mesa, we have to go back toward another thread that I have left dangling in the wind for some time now, namely, the Mormons. The ever-industrious and colonizing Mormons play a huge role in the history of Arizona that I've just not touched yet, mainly because, once again, I was trying to find a good time to talk about them all in one big go. I decided that time will be after the Thanksgiving holiday, so please forgive me that I'm telling their story a little out of order just so I can slip Mesa in right here. Anywho, the first Mormons to settle in the Salt River Valley arrived in 1877 as part of a group that was actually seeking to establish settlements down in Mexico. The church's leader, Brigham Young, had a strong inkling to know and settle every inch of the West, and had sent colonizers out in all directions, creating a chain of settlements from Canada down into Mexico. The expedition that made it to central Arizona was led by a man named Daniel W. Jones, who had quite the adventurous life as a missionary across the Southwest after converting to the faith as a young man. The group first set up shop at an abandoned station for nearby Fort McDowell, known as Maryville, which was located near where State Route 87 intersects with McDowell Road today. This group would go on to build Fort Utah on the south side of the Salt River, which went by Utahville, then Jonesville, and finally the name we know it today, Lehi, after a prophet in the Book of Mormon. However, there was some friction between Jones and some of his fellow settlers, as he had plans to live much closer and more connected with the native peoples than the others had originally anticipated. Though Mormon doctrine held that the Amerindians were part of the House of Israel and needed the gospel preached to them, in practice, more than a few of the American adherents of the faith still wanted to keep them at an arm's length. So many of Lehi's original settlers picked up and kept moving south toward Mexico as they originally intended. 
And while all of that was happening, two more groups left from Idaho and Utah to come to the Salt River Valley and make a go of it. These groups were comprised of families whose names should ring a bell for those who grew up in Mesa, like yours truly, or spent any time looking at the street names near downtown. That is, the Robsons, Chrismans, Serenes, and Pomeroys. I'll also throw in here that somewhere near the beginning, another group arrived with the Lasuir family, another long-standing Mesa name. And after spending a couple days at what would be known as Lehigh, the new arrivals decided that this was indeed the place to start farming. They were greatly aided by the discovery of more of the perfectly engineered Hohokam canals, an estimated 123 miles of them. But since they hadn't been used in approximately 400 years, the Mormons had some great pains to clear them out. Early state historian James H. McClintock estimated that it cost about $48,000 in labor and materials to get the water flowing again. When it came to their actual settlement, these new arrivals quickly determined to build it high on the tablelands above the Salt River rather than next to it. So the award for the first structure built up on the titular mesa goes to the Pomeroy family, which built a mud and stick structure that would serve as a home and later schoolhouse and dance hall. By November 1878, all the settlers had followed suit and literally moved up to the new town site. And expert farmers as they were, soon enough the irrigation canals were allowing the settlers to harvest grains, vegetables, and fruit enough to sustain their growing population. Now, I will mention at this time that the foundation of Tempe and Mesa didn't really impact Phoenix that much. Mesa, in particular, with its Mormon roots, would, in the words of one historian, remain a closed-off, quote, clannish theocracy for some time. But there was one small conflict recorded by early historian James H. McClintock. Apparently, the summer of 1879 was one of the driest the American population had ever experienced, and the Salt River behaved much like it does today, drying up to nothing but a bed of sand five miles downstream of Mesa. Blaming their wilting crops on the Mormon Canal stealing all the water, an armed expedition of at least 20 farmers rode eastward with vague notions of fighting it out. However, this group was met by Jones, who tried diplomacy, admitting that yes, the Phoenix farmers had prior irrigation claims, and he proposed that the two main Mormon canals would close their headgates for three days to see if that would actually affect things downstream. It didn't matter that upon inspection, the Mormon canals were also running incredibly low. This experiment was tried, and as McClintock says, quote, the added water was merely wasted. The sand expanse drank it up, and the lower ditches were not benefited. End quote. The historian concludes the anecdote by saying that this is the only recorded conflict between the Mormon settlers and their neighbors to the west. I'll just wrap up today by saying that it was T.C. Serene who gets credit for crafting the name Mesa City for the land he was on in May 1878 and deeding the title to it to a group of trustees that was composed of other first settlers. The city of Mesa itself would incorporate on July 15, 1883. However, there was some issue with the name. Mail originally was being sent to Hayden's Ferry, and the federal government refused to establish a Mesa post office because it was too similar to a small settlement in Pinal County called Mesaville. 
So the Mormons started calling their settlement Hayden, after Judge Hayden, who had been friendly toward them and given work to members of the original party who stayed in Lehi. But even though Hayden's Ferry was now being called Tempe, thanks to our old friend from episode 57, Lord Dupa, the Hayden name still meant a lot of the mail was getting sent there instead of what had been Mesa City. So in 1887, the name was changed to Zenith, after another Book of Mormon figure, but finally the settlement of Mesaville became a ghost town and the community of Mormons living on the tabletop above the Salt River were finally able to secure the name Mesa, which we all know and love today. And I'm going to leave things here for this week, as we now hit all the major points that I had hoped to during this time period. As a way of an announcement, there will be no episode next week, as it is Thanksgiving here in the United States, and I plan to spend it stuffing myself silly, both in terms of food and quality time with family. But we'll be back on Sunday, December 5th, with a new episode where we will finally take a deeper look at the Mormon immigration into Arizona, and how it was a church member, later executed by authorities in Utah, who founded one of the most important river crossings of the late 19th century. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.